Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Now. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Uh, if you're not familiar with us, we are an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood. We're pretty close to Griffith Park. Um, we are open right now, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. weekdays and 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. weekends, as long as the county and city <laughs> allow us to be open. Um, so just keep checking our social media if you've heard anything different. And um, we do offer curbside pickup those same hours, and we also are happy to ship books. Um, if you shop on our, on our website, skylightbooks.com, you can also give us a call at the store, 323-660-1175. Um, we are getting into crunch time now for holiday shopping um, and especially for shipping. So if you are hoping to buy books as a gift and have them shipped, do that as soon as you can. Um, you should have probably done it already. I'm not going to scold you, but you probably should have. Um, but yeah, as I said, we can also do curbside pickup and you can hand deliver um, if that suits you. All right. So today uh, we're going to be talking about pirates. I'm really excited. I'm a huge pirate fan. I'm wearing a stripy shirt today, which you can't see because <laughs> we're on Zoom. Um, but uh, my guest today is Rebecca Simon, the author of the new book, Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever, which is out now from Mango Press. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read Rebecca's bio and say a few words about the book, and then we're going to jump into conversation. Rebecca Simon earned a PhD in history at King's College London about the history of pirates and public executions. She has presented her research all around the world. She's appeared on the BBC and has been the guest on numerous popular podcasts, including this one, such as Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness, to discuss all things pirates. She has consulted for Netflix, the History Channel, BBC, and Lego. Rebecca has previously published her work in History Today magazine and academic journals. She lives in Los Angeles, where she writes, teaches, and consults about all things pirates. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for being here today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, so I want to just uh, give our listeners a little bit of context for the book. So this book focuses particularly on Captain Kidd and a kind of turning point moment in the history of piracy, um, which you're going to tell us a little bit more about. Um, and uh, we all know and love pirates in their current iterations today, but this is kind of this moment that the book focuses on is kind of the moment when pirates become these popular figures um, in the imagination of people all over the world. Um, so there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so Rebecca, do you want to start us off with just a short introduction or a short reading from the beginning of the book to give us a little taste? Yeah, sure. So I'll read just a quick passage from the first chapter, which basically, <coughs> excuse me, uh, which basically shows what everybody kind of used to think, what we think about pirates and kind of a little bit what they were, just a very short snippet. So everyone knows what a pirate is. We all think of a man who sails the high seas with his brethren to pillage and plunder any ships that cross their path. After burying gold coins and jewels in a secret location, they sell the rest of their goods and immediately spend that money in taverns on alcohol and women. They sing into the night, start fights, attack towns, and escape right under the noses of the most highly trained officers. After a short period of time, the sea calls them back and they return to their ship and continue their plundering. Their unlucky hostages walk the plank and are cast into Davy Jones's locker. They swagger and radiate sex. Pirates are cool. The truth is a little bit more complicated than that. But one thing that is for sure is that pirates have always been and continue to be deliciously illicit. We have always been morbidly fascinated by pirates. Who were these people who chose to sail under such risky conditions? If capture meant a certain death, why undertake such an endeavor? Essentially, pirates were people who rejected society and created their own little world on ships. Their community was multicultural and everyone got an equal share of the prize. They answered to nobody but themselves. Their deeds were reported in newspapers and other publications with flute, which flew off the shelves for the common people to consume during the 18th century. In Britain and colonial America, when pirates gathered around, or in Britain and colonial America, when people gathered around in taverns to hear someone read the news, pirates were always a subject that came up. They read about pirates who brutally murdered their hostages, stole large ships and huge caches of supplies, were captured and put on trial, and were sentenced to harsh public deaths at the gallows. Reading between the lines, they learned about how pirates brought for desired forbidden items into the colonies. These stories were gulped down like the tastiest of rums. Oh, thank you for that reading, Rebecca. Um, this is going to be so fun. So uh, I think this, this introduction um, is really good at kind of just giving us a quick overview of our own kind of concepts of pirates, um, which are so powerful, especially kind of in the wake of the Pirates of the Caribbean movie franchise. <clears throat> um, and I'm curious, so this is obviously a, a quite researched book quite in depth. Um, so where did your research into pirates begin? So my interest in pirates kind of started in two different ways. So I guess sort of in a pop culture way, I'm a Los Angeles native. I grew up going to Disneyland every year since I was a baby. Um, and as long as I can remember, my favorite ride has always been the Pirates of the Caribbean. I just thought it was fun. I liked the water. I liked the music and I liked the stories. And then, of course, the first Pirates of the Caribbean film, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, came out in 2003. And I saw that, I think, about three times in theaters. I just thought it was so fun. Um, so I kind of had a pop culture interest in pirates. But I never even considered there could be an academic interest in pirates until I was doing a master's uh, at Cal State Northridge uh, in history. And I was taking a class called Atlantic History, which sort of is the history of colonial America, the Caribbean, Britain, and Africa, essentially the countries that border the Atlantic coast. And there was a book we had to read called Villains of All Nations by Marcus Redeker, which was about pirates. 
And it was really interesting because in the book, it showed that pirates were sort of seen as these terrorists, essentially. So in response, the British government used kind of a dialectic of terror on their own, sort of their own form of terrorism to rid the seas of pirates, known as the war on piracy. So the British government decided to use essentially a form of terrorism on their own to get rid of the pirates, known as the war on piracy. And I thought this was so fascinating because if pirates were considered to be so cool in pop culture, so this really interested me because I never knew that pirates were kind of seen as quote unquote terrorists and these really horrifying people essentially. And so I got really interested and wondered, well, if that was the case, if they were seen as kind of these terrifying criminals in the 16 and 1700s throughout uh, Caribbean, the Caribbean and North America, how did that change into Jack Sparrow ultimately, where we become rooting for, where we started rooting for pirates. And so I decided to kind of make that the subject of my master's and um, I began reading kind of in newspapers and stuff like that, that this fascination didn't really start. It kind of started in the 1700s. It did because pirates were seen as sort of these agents of social change in a lot of ways. And also the publication of the book Treasure Island in the 1880s really kind of changed the way we see them into the Jack Sparrow character. So when I moved to London to do my doctor, I wanted to continue this, but I had to narrow my focus. And so I began reading about a pirate named Captain Kidd from um, the turn of the 18th century who operated 1698-1699 time period. And I saw when he was captured, he was taken to be executed for his crimes in a place called East London on the bank of the Thames in a neighborhood called Wapping at Execution Dock. And I found that interesting because I'd read before in other books that the place of ex public executions, which were common, really fun events people would go to, took place in West London at the Tyburn Tree. And so I wondered, I was like, oh, why is he being taken to a different spot? That's really interesting. So I went and looking for an article or a book to find out more, and there wasn't one. And so I decided to research it and find it out, which eventually ended up being my topic. And I since turned that into this book here. It's been a kind of a labor of love for years now, and I'm really glad I get to share it. That's so cool. I love when um, when a book kind of has stayed with you for many, many years before it becomes a book, you know, when it's, when it's become part of your life in this really real way. Um, so I don't want to have any spoilers, you know, in case people want to buy the book. So maybe we won't say exactly why Captain Kidd was executed there, but I'm curious why, uh, why did you choose Captain Kidd and, and who was this guy? What was he about? So Captain Kidd was a Scottish privateer for the British government. And a privateer is basically someone kind of like a legally sanctioned pirate. They got a contract from the government called a letter of mark, which where they were specifically ordered to attack specific enemy ships. And in return for their payment, they could keep all the loot that they would steal. But they could only really... Um, take this sort of, um, only capture those specific ships. And so he was charged to do that, to sail into the East Indies. Um, and he, I, he's a fascinating character because he kind of sort of bridged, kind of, he kind of straddled the line between tri privateer and pirate. There's kind of a debate, was he or was he not? Because he did rob some ships that ended up being outside the letter of Mark, but he insisted that they weren't, and it turned into a whole big thing. So I like looking at him because 
This was the first live recorded manhunt. There had been manhunts for pirates before him, such as Henry Avery, but this was the first time that newspapers were documenting everything live as quick as they could, you know, at the turn of the 18th century. And the first time people really fascinated seeing what was happening in real time from when he was arrested in the Americas and shipped back to London and went on trial and his, um, and his execution. Um, that was always a source, source of fascination. So he is kind of like the definition of how people initially became really fascinated by pirates. So he's kind of the first celebrity pirate. Kind of. Like there have been famous ones before him, but he was the first one where you know, the newspaper industry had kind of exploded during the time. And so people were able to print doc articles about him that were picked up by other publications and printed far and wide. So this was like the first time people actually had the most information about pirates as it was happening at their fingertips, not just hearsay or something that had happened, you know, several years before, but now. Mm -hmm. And before, before the case of Captain Kidd, kind of, can you give us a sense of like, what, what did people think of pirates? What did they know about them? If they knew anything, um, you know, obviously information did not move at the speed that it moves now. So pirates have essentially been around since the beginning of human history, once people figured out how to sail. So pirates were, were always known and there was very much a mixed bag of pirates. For the most part, people were scared of them. You know, in the ancient, ancient time period, there were these people known as the Sea Peoples who came across the Mediterranean and plundered Mesopotamia until it collapsed several empires. We don't know who they are, but a lot of people think they might have been pirates. There, of course, were you know, pirates in the East Indian Ocean, pirates off the coast of China, um, pirates pretty much everywhere you could possibly imagine. What people thought of them is a little, it's a little mixed because they were a real threat, especially in colonial America, because as, uh, New England in particular relied on the maritime industry for shipping wood to Europe from logging, um, the fishing industry in particular. So they were a real, real threat. They were a real threat to the British government as well, especially in the Caribbean, because they were disrupting trade so much. But here's the thing. In the 1600s, there was a book called The Buccaneers of America, published by Alexander X. Camellin. I can never pronounce his last name. Um, Alexander X. Camellin, which was a really wide hit. It was published in several languages, and it, it was about pirates within America. You hear about famous ones such as Henry Morgan. Um, so... There was always a fascination, and then this um, there and there was kind of actually a good relationship with pirates amongst a lot of colonists, particularly in the Mid Atlantic region, the South, and the Caribbean. And this is because from the 1650s onwards, the British government was trying to essentially cripple their European competitors when they were settling co plantation colonies in the Caribbean, particularly the French and the Spanish and Portuguese. So they passed these laws called the Navigation Acts, which banned all their colonists from trading with any country outside of Britain or associated with Britain. And so pirates were able to go and they would rob these ships, you know, Spanish ships, French ships, Portuguese ships, Dutch, Dutch ships, and were able to bring in all these goods back into the colonies, which would help the economy. It, you know, brought them good stability for their communities and also their families. A lot of governors would kind of turn a blind eye or even outwardly fund and support them. So despite the fact that they were a real threat and seen in, um, 
and seen as people that needed to be stopped. At the same time, there were loads of powerful figures who openly supported them. So I feel like I'm, I'm hoping that answers the question. I'm just kind of saying like, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think this is so interesting because yeah, pirates are intertwined with the history of colonialism and imperialism. And they are, it seems like at a certain period in history, the biggest direct threat to colonial empire and the consolidation of resources under one flag, right? They are they are always slipping through the cracks and finding finding ways to get goods to people who are not sanctioned to have those goods. Um, and I've, I know a little bit about the history of um, pirate societies. Um, there's actually a great novel called The Confessions of the Fox um, oh. that, that kind of has like a, a plot line about the founding of a pirate society on an island. Um, so I, I think something I'd like to tease out a little bit more is like, yeah, what, what, what was it like to be a pirate? What did pirates actually stand for? Um, and what was their society like? Um, and in your research, what have you uncovered uh, that's really stuck with you? So pirate society was really, really interesting. Pirate ships were known to be quite diverse ships, much more, much more so than merchant and naval ships. They kind of encompass generally a pirate ship consisted of British and American colonists. Um, that was probably the majority of most ships since about half of all pirates in the Atlantic world were British and American colonists. But you also would find, you know, Frenchmen, Portuguese, um, Dutch people, um, Africans, freed or escaped enslaved Africans would often find a place on a pirate ship because they were either at threat of capture and going back into the chain game or unable to get jobs anywhere. A lot of people who joined pirate ships were also trying to escape something, um, whether they were escaping conditions on merchant ships or the naval ships, which would often have, you know, cruel superiors, maybe not very good food, um, harsh punishments. A pirate ship was actually much more democratic. They could vote. They had a captain who was generally the most experienced, the bravest fighter, um, and someone who had been a sailor for a long time. But people could vote out their captain if they felt he wasn't doing a good job. And they could vote for other positions. Everyone got an equal share, like depending on what their position was, they all had a specific amount of money or loot that would be given out to them. They were given really high compensation if they lost a limb in battle, like up, upwards of 600 pounds during the time period, if you lost a right arm or a right leg, for instance, which was a huge amount of money back then, and still, frankly, a lot today. So, <clears throat> and, um, sorry, I think what else? And so, pirates on their ship, they were their own society. They considered themselves to be of no nation. Their only their country who they were loyal to was on their ship. They had their own flag called the Jolly Roger. It's real, the black flag with the skull and crossbones. That was kind of their symbol as they became much more organized in the 1710s. And they also developed what became known as the Pirate Kingdom in the Bahamas, off the coast of Florida, on an island called the Island of Providence in a city called Nassau. And this became kind of an official Pirate Kingdom because a lot of sort of degenerates sort of went in that location. You had tons of sailors because it was right in the middle of a lot of really good trading lanes. You had direct access to North America and the Caribbean. And... So a lot of pirates began settling there. And then one day a really powerful captain named Benjamin Hornigold came in and was like, 
we need to organize this and this would actually be a great place for pirates to come and congregate safely. So it kind of essentially became the pirate kingdom. Pirates generally supported each other. A lot of the really famous pirates from the 1710s knew each other and even sailed together, such as Blackbeard, Steed Bonnet, Charles Vane, Jack Rackham, and the female pirates, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed. So they were a lot of pirates referred to themselves as the brethren as well, kind of like almost a brotherhood. So there was kind of a loyalty between all of them. Yeah, and it sounds like it was a less stratified society than, uh, say, colonial Britain, um, where people had more of an opportunity to advance and have their voices heard. Um, yeah. So obviously, yes, you can see why the colonial powers would want to stamp that out. <laughs> um, so when when Captain Kidd was executed, um, first of all, it was it was a public execution, and that was part of the uh, the kind of standard theater of the time yeah. that that pirates would be executed in public. Um, yeah. What What do you think changed with with Captain Kidd's execution, what what kind of shifted in the public consciousness or with regards to the government's approach to dealing with pirates? So a couple of things. So one, what's interesting is that his execution sort of followed the standard formula of a public execution. You're absolutely correct, it was theater. And a lot of it sort of meant to, meant to be a warning, but frankly also meant to be entertaining as well, because loads of people would show up to executions of all kinds. So, but what was interesting about his is that he was led to the place of execution, whopping by the Admiralty Court. And the Admiralty Court had been officially set up as early as the 12 and 1300s um, as a court who was meant to be in charge of all things maritime. Um, Henry VIII kind of solidified them and gave them specific power to really rid the seas of all enemies. And so he would be led by members of the Admiralty Court across London. They would hold a silver oar meant that symbolized the Admiralty. So everyone kind of knew who was coming. Captain Kidd would have, he would have had to go onto the scaffold um, while someone called the Ordinary of Newgate, kind of a spiritual advisor to criminals, would sort of talk about who they are, whether or not they've repented their crimes, and kind of outlining and having to state what all the crimes were and what they're being charged for. And then the, the person who was going to be um, who was going to hang, he had to give a what was called a last dying speech. And this was a speech where they atoned for their crimes, they begged forgiveness, and they warned anyone from going into their path of piracy or whatever crimes that they had committed. And then the hanging happened. But what was what changed with Captain Kidd is that his trial was public, like most trials were. And, you know, people always recorded trials for the records, but the, this was published verbatim. So um, like the next day and it sold out within a day. And so it had to start getting reprinted a lot by the printers, which was practically unheard of. And um, at least at the time for something like a pirate trial. They also had written down the, the Ordinary of Newgate had also written down his observations of Captain Kidd, and it was written down all the events that happened at his execution, because Captain Kidd actually showed up so drunk he couldn't give his speech, and um, which was also extra entertaining. That would happen a few times with pirates, actually. But these sort of events, if they had a last dying speech, would also get published. And the events surrounding him, again, sold out within a day 
which was a really, really big deal. Um, so this kind of changed. So this kind of started a whole new kind of lucrative area in the publishing industry of publishing trials, publishing their last dying speeches, and the whole account of what the ordinary would write down what happened at the execution. At the same time, an act called the um, Act for the Effectual Suppression of Piracy was passed around 1701, which is the year Captain Kidd was executed. And this was an act to really get rid of all the pirates in the, in the Atlantic world, essentially. And it offered clemency to pirates, offered pardons. If they turned themselves in and named all their accomplices, then they were going to get pardoned for their crime and they could keep all their loot as well. Um, this didn't work. <laughs> pirates did not want to betray each other. There was no guarantee that the word would be kept. Oftentimes, they'd still be imprisoned while they were trying to find whether or not the information was true. And sometimes they were transported to work on naval ships since they were skilled sailors or would have to go into indentured servitude into the plantation colonies. This act was reissued several times and it never worked properly. But around the time of Captain Kidd's hanging, what changed is that, you know, everything had been recorded live before and now people were able to you know, anyone who wasn't able to attend the execution or the trial could now read exactly what happened. And it was really popular literature. And this became kind of the standard for not just pirates, but kind of all criminals who are sentenced to hang for their crimes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's no denying that there's a romantic side to, to the pirate story, and especially um, one that ends with execution. Um, and I can see why they became so popular at the same time as, you know, all of these other kind of forms of literature are starting to take off. Um, so as, as the, pu the public is getting more and more invested in the story of piracy, pirates are, what's happening with the pirates? Like, so the British empire is not exactly succeeding in ridding the seas of pirates, but they are sort of like, what's happening with their societies? Are they still, is, is Nassau still a place where they can go safely or are things starting to break down for them? So Nassau from around 1713 is when it became an official pirate kingdom, was pretty successful for a few years, but by the early, around 1720-ish, I'm not positive of the date, but around that time, you have a new governor come into the Bahamas named Woods Rogers, who had actually once been kind of a private privateer turned pirate hunter and then became a governor. Um, and he began, like Nassau still operated as a pirate city, but he was trying to take control to really kind of stamp it down. So it lasted a few years. Before Nassau, there had been another kind of pirate society in Port Royal, Jamaica. That city might sound familiar to those of you who've seen the Pirates of the Caribbean films, because that's where the first one takes place at the beginning. Um, and that's an island just off the coast of Jamaica, off the coast of the capital, Kingston. And that was known as kind of a pirate society. It was known as the Sodom of the Sea because a lot of people who went there were pirates, other criminals, um, sex workers, um, kind of lots of degenerates. They said there was one tavern for every, I think, every 10 people that lined the streets. But then an earthquake in 1692 actually collapsed part of the island. And then the Royal Navy swept in and pirates began to scatter. And they kind of like formed other little havens sort of scattered around um, until they were able to, until Nassau kind of grew and became a place for them to go to. And this was pretty successful though, up until kind of the late 1720s. And this is because at this point, the Navy had grown a lot stronger. 
Um, a lot of major pirate leaders had either died or been killed in battle. And this would include Benjamin Hornigold, who had managed, who, who died, who was killed. Blackbeard was beheaded in battle. Um, Charles Vane, Jack Rackham, and Bonnie Mary Reed all hung for their crimes along with loads of others. And so around that time, a lot of pirate societies just began to scatter. <clears throat> and then other wars began breaking out and the British needed experienced sailors who could fight. And so pirates were like, you know what? It's just gonna be safer for us to go back to being privateers. And so a lot did. So it lasted a while, like kind of these pirate societies in different areas. Um, but then the kind of just, it was a natural breakdown that happened in the late 1720s, not really because of the British government, but because it came, became too risky after mm -hmm. a time. So they were kind of reabsorbed into so-called straight society. Yeah. And this era, this time period had been known as the golden age of piracy because this, like the 1700s until about 1726, when, when there was the last major public execution of a pirate named William Fly. It was known as the golden age of piracy because that was a time when pirates were very, very organized in these bands of piracy and had specific locales to be in. Mm. It, I, it's interesting to hear this. And I'm thinking about the parallels in the digital sphere, like that piracy is a word that has carried on and taken on new, new meanings, but that these systems of kind of social outcasts forming their own groups. Like that, that, ha that happened again um, online. We very yeah. much had pirate societies on the internet and still do on the dark, the dark and shady corners of the dark web. It's so true because, um, you know, the, the legal definition for piracy starting from like the 1500s was anyone who robbed and committed murder on the high seas, which then kind of devolved into... If you robbed a British ship, it meant you were trying to destroy the British Empire and therefore trying to kill Britain. You're a pirate. And so I always found it kind of interesting when people like, let's say, you know, a Napster first became a thing, LimeWire, when we were all downloading music illegally, that became known as kind of internet piracy because it was seen you're stealing music and killing the music industry. That's how it was kind of viewed. So I always found it really interesting. Like as I began studying this, like I totally see these parallels. Like, yeah, it makes total sense why they would use that term to this day. So piracy becomes not a crime against the individual people who had the ship, but a crime against these large institutions. Um, right. It's essentially an anti-establishment act to commit mm -hmm. piracy. Yep. Very much so. That's so fascinating. Um, so let's talk a little bit about kind of the pop culture side and, um, you know, how we ended up where we are now. So you mentioned uh, Treasure Island as being kind of mm -hmm. one of the first works of literature to, to really sort of humanize the pirate. Um, yeah, can you, can you sort of trace the timeline from Treasure Island to Pirates of the Caribbean where we are now? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Treasure Island was published um, initially as a serial, so kind of like weekly chapter publications starting around 1881. And then in 1883, it was all put together into one volume, initially published in Britain and then very soon after published in the United States. And it was a massive hit. Um, and it especially attracted a lot of boys really loved it. It became known as kind of children's literature. A lot of girls loved it, too. And, you know, the villain of the story is Long John Silver, who creates a mutiny on a ship where they're trying to find this treasure that had been buried by an old sea captain who had a map, a captain named Captain Flint. And, you know, this is where we get the idea of X marks the spot, because there was literally an X on this map. 
And Long John Silver stages a mutiny to take over and take all the treasure for himself, and he escapes. And so, but somehow while we're reading, we're kind of rooting for him. Um, and so this really changed. They began to put this on theater, like as in on the stage. Um, another really popular story that came out not long after, of course, was Peter Pan, where you have Captain Hook and his pirates. Again, a really fun adventure story, which also is adapted for the stage. And then Treasure Island was adapted as several films, kind of into the 30s. And then you have the 1950 version, um, starring a man named Robert Newton as Long John Silver. He was Cornish and grew up kind of on the coast, um, that's Southwest England. And he had kind of a heavy Cornwall accent. Um, and what he did is he really like amped it up for the role of Long John Silver. So the whole like R matey that we hear comes from Robert Newton. It comes from his kind of very, very much overplayed, exaggerated accent. And so this kind of became standard pirate speech. Um, and so piracy, Treasure Island, again, was adapted several more times. Um, in the meantime, in the 1950s, not long after that, Disneyland opens with the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, which took massive inspiration from Treasure Island. And then going into, of course, the 1980s, uh, we have the Princess Bride with the Dread Pirate Roberts played by Carrie Elways. And, you know, and what I found so interesting is that, you know, he's known as this really terrifying pirate, the Dread Pirate Roberts, I'm guessing probably named, like kind of referring to Bartholomew Roberts, who was known to be the most successful pirate in history of piracy to this, in today's currency, he would have become a billionaire with all the amount he was able to steal. Um, and it was really interesting because it reveals, of course, it's actually her love, Wesley, um, and when he was captured by the Dread Pirate Roberts, it turned out it was, that, was, that wasn't the actual Dread Pirate Roberts. It was kind of a name that was being passed on. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of an interesting lore. And then you get the Goonies where they find the pirate ship in a cave. Um, and so the popularity kind of stayed, but it would ebb and flow. So for a period of time in the 90s, you don't have very much. Um, there's a couple of films. Um, I know there's one, I think called Cutthroat Island with Gina Davis, mm -hmm. sort of based on Anne Bonny. Um, the female pirate. And then it goes into this new film, Pirates of the Caribbean, with Johnny Depp, who, of course, was a mega star at the time, and kind of comes in sort of with this whole new vision of piracy that was, that was based a lot on Robert Newton's uh, Long John Silver. But he took inspirations, of course, from other musicians like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, that sort of thing. And then that is kind of what exploded pirate pop culture industry. Of course, Pirates of the Caribbean has had five films. They're rebooting the series. There was a television show, Black Sails on Stars, that had um, three or four seasons, which I thought was excellent because it actually is very accurate, um, kind of a mix of fiction and fact as well. And then you've got popular shows in the History Channel, like Oak Island. So it's kind of, pirates are kind of back right now. They're kind of on this upward trajectory again in popularity. It's always pirate, pirate, Pop culture since Treasure Island has never gone away. It's just ebbed and flowed. But every single piece of pirate pop culture we've ever had has all been based on Treasure Island. This is where we get the idea of the of the um, eye patch, the peg leg, the parrots on the shoulder, the language, the accent, the dress. Um, everything comes from Treasure Island, and it's been used in pretty much every piece of pop culture ever since. I'm curious. So you said that uh pirate pop culture kind of goes through these ebbs and flows do you have any theories about why pirates come back into the popularity every decade or so 
Um, I'm honestly not really too sure. I think it's just kind of the way the trends go. Um, I know in the nineties, there was a big thing where Disney was going to be, where Disney changed a little bit of the pirates of the Caribbean ride where initially you have pirates who are chasing women in circles. And then they changed it to where women started chasing the men and the men were chasing like chickens um, and that sort of thing. And so that really hit the news a lot. It was kind of controversial. Um, And so that sort of um, kind of brought piracy back into uh, popularity again. I think in in terms of the 80s, you have the publication of the book, Princess Bride, which led into the film a few years later in the 80s, that caused kind of a resurgence in popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Disney, because of the Pirates Caribbean franchise, which was based, or because of their ride franchise and based on Treasure Island, you know, they would kind of create piratey stuff. You've got Peter Pan, the animated film. They created Muppet Treasure Island, which is awesome. Oh, a classic. So classic. good. Like my, one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> But I don't know if that answers the question. I'm not positive why it ebbs and flows. I think it just has to kind of do with natural trends, hmm. um, like clothing, music, that sort of thing. It's just a whole, it's just another piece of pop culture that keeps coming back. I'm just curious if there's some link between, you know, the kind of association with pirates and anti-establishment sentiment um, and, you know, whatever Americans are going through financially, because, you know, in the 80s, we have massive, massive income inequality and exploding stock market, um, Mm. which is its own kind of, there's piracy going on there for sure. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I've wondered that as well. You know, you got the Reagan era going into the, into the eighties where, you know, a lot of people kind of changed the neoconservatism, which led to what we have today. You know, again, people becoming really anti-establishment, wondering, you know, seeing this whole new government as kind of, you know, really, really villainous and terrible. The book 1984 had kind of topped the charts again since, you know, for the first time since it was first published in the 1940s. And so it kind of makes sense in a way that piracy would come back in pop culture because these people were people who were going against the establishment. And what's also interesting is that pirates were also seen as, um, since the 1700s, agents of social change. Because it used to always be that if you were born poor, you stayed poor. Um, if you were born wealthy, you'd always be wealthy. But here were pirates, the vast majority, born poor, who were actually able to make money and kind of change their social class in a way um, and be able to live comfortably for the rest of their lives if they survive piracy. And so, of course, you know, during a time of lots of income inequality, it was, it's been, it's still a similar situation. You're born, um, you know, in a poverty, in, in poverty, it's very difficult to climb the ladder out of it. And they call it the cycle of poverty. And so pirates kind of always sort of exemplified these people that could, you know, were able to kind of come out of it, you know, mm-hmm. through stealing and fighting and swashbuckling and attacking the establishment. Like it's absolutely, absolutely would make sense if they come back in popularity during a time in which we're having all kinds of social issues going on. Yeah. And I think expanding that even further, um, you know, pirates were not only able to move through existing economic structures, they were also, you know, moving a, a, around and above and underneath sort of international boundaries, um, boundaries of language, boundaries of culture, boundaries of gender. You know, there there are stories of women who dressed as men and went on yes. to become very successful pirates, yes. um, which is what happens in Confessions of the Fox. 
Um, it's actually oh, I a, the name of that. I wrote that down. I'm going to read yeah, it. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think I actually think the protagonist of that is based on Jack Rackham. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, great. so you, you will enjoy it. It's a really fun read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I think I, I can see why. And I think, you know, Johnny Depp's portrayal of Jack Sparrow is, uh, has some sort of like gender fluid qualities as well. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. so I, I, I definitely see why people keep coming back to that because there's like a sense of freedom associated with the pirate. That's not just freedom of movement. It's also freedom of expression and identity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's so fun talking about pirates. I could talk about pirates forever. Um, <laughs> here, honestly. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners that maybe I haven't gotten to in my questions yet? Um, just kind of to expand on what you just said about kind of gender, you know, there, there were female pirates and Bonnie and Mary Reed, um, who were active in 1720 and they sailed with Jack Rackham and Bonnie was actually married to Jack Rackham. And, you know, they sailed and they became known as some of the fiercest pirates in the Caribbean. Um, Their career was only for two months, but they became some of the most famous. And, you know, obviously it's because they were women. They would fight, you know, their hair. They dressed in men's clothing, but they um, fought with their hair down and flowing. They would fight with their shirts completely open, bearing their breasts to everyone to intimidate the people they were attacking. Because, of (laughs) course, that would be really shocking to see. Yeah. (laughs) Good Um, technique. Yeah, and when they were captured by pirate hunter Jonathan Barnett, um, Jack Rackham and his crew, they were so drunk off a recent win that he freaked out and told everyone to just hide um, in the ship where and leaving Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed to fight just the two of them off the whole ship of pirate hunters. Of course, they were captured, but Captain Barnett said they were some of the fiercest fighters he ever encountered. They put up a good fight. And so there's, you know, there's reason to believe there were probably other women we just don't know because women were known to disguise themselves uh going you know to join armies to join navies joining pirate ships that sort of thing um but we'll never know but i think there were probably there were definitely more female pirates you've got the irish queen grace o'malley pirate queen grace o'malley hannah Mm -hmm. snell who worked on i think the navy on naval ships um, Madame Chang, the 19th century pirate queen um, ch- off the coast of China, who was actually the most successful pirate in history. The Chinese government paid her to retire. <laughs> That's how powerful <laughs> she was. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so it, in a way, I mean, a lot of times women weren't allowed on ships for various reasons, but, you know, there, there were women who were able to really transcend this as well. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see lots of women would find pirates like Anne Bonny and Mary Reed fascinating because they were able to break off kind of a lot of social shackles that women lived under in the 18th century, confined to the home, pretty much only being able to work in the domestic industry um, or as um, later in factories or as sex workers as well, um, if they fell into dire straits. So Anne Bonny and Mary Reed were women who sort of were able to break away from this. And they both, neither of them were executed actually. They ended up both being pregnant when they were put on put on trial, and unfortunately, and so they they had a they had a stay of execution, meaning it would be delayed after childbirth. But um, Mary Reed ended up dying of childbed fever in prison, and Anne Bonny, we don't know what happened. There's no execution date for her, but it's pretty much accepted 
Uh, it's likely her father managed to kind of bail her out of jail because he was actually a successful lawyer who previously disowned her for taking up with a sailor named James Bonney and marrying him. Um, and it's believed that she went back home to North Carolina and possibly lived as late into the 1780s, but we don't know for sure. But, you know, these are women who sort of went against the grain, just like all pirates did. Mm. I love hearing about Anne Bonney, um, and who also makes an appearance in Confessions of the Fox. <laughs> I keep plugging this book, but it is like so exactly your kind of book. Uh, I, I can't help but be a bookseller. What can I do? I love it. <laughs> um, so my last question is, um, what do you think uh, readers today can take away from the stories of pirates and, you know, in our own lives? Um, what, what kind of resonates for you uh, as, as something that the pirates have taught you? I think just what I've always really found interesting about pirates was just kind of the control a lot of them were trying to take back in their lives. Um, you know, a lot of them being from poor families who are able to kind of fight against this establishment and become wealthy. I've always been really interested and fascinated by people who are able to successfully kind of become very anti-establishment and be successful in that way. And I also want people, what I also want people to take away is that the majority of pirates were also very much regular people. Um, a lot of pirates, in fact, most of them only operated on pirate ships for maybe a year or two and then would retire home. And, you know, they had wives, they had families. Um, they knew the risks going in. It was certain death that they were captured, it's death by hanging and could leave their family in dire straits. But the vast majority of people who joined up into piracy was to kind of, you know, get, make more money or to escape some bad conditions. And they were just very much regular people. You know, pirate ships accepted anyone as long as you could sail, follow directions, and weren't afraid to die in battle. So just pirates were regular people like you and me. <laughs> so you're saying I could be a pirate if I wanted. You, you could be a pirate. You've already got the shirt. It's a striped shirt. You're, already, you're, you're ready. <laughs> Perfect. Great. I'm you're signing up today. You're good to go. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. This has been a pleasure. Um, I hope our listeners check out your book. It sounds like it's got lots more fun and fascinating tidbits where this came from. So thank you for thank sharing. You. You're welcome. And thank you for having me on. I hope people, I hope people enjoy it. Yes, I think they will. All right, <laughs> everybody. Um, thank you all so much for listening. We will catch you on the flip side. Ta-ta.
Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.